And uh, beginning in verse, verse 45, uh, you remember this is right on the heels of the glorious raising of Lazarus from the dead. And what we have in these verses is the uh, response of the religious leaders to that unquestionable display of Jesus' power over death. And so John chapter 11, uh, beginning in verse 45. We read, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad, so from that day on, they made plans to put him, Jesus, to death. Here we have so many precious memories of fellowship together. Uh, we're excited at the prospect of turning to God's word. And that's a, such a help to a, a preacher, I can tell you, when everybody comes with an appetite and an expectancy for the word of God. Now, I'm sure that everybody here tonight knows that there are four gospels in the Bible. The Gospel according to Matthew, according to Mark, according to Luke, according to John. But this evening I want you to listen to the Gospel according to Christ's enemies. One of the things that confirms me as a Christian, as a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, is to hear from time to time, statements that have been made by people who would never have called themselves Christians, unbelievers and sometimes vicious opponents of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, and yet they've come out with statements that are absolutely true about the Lord Jesus Christ. That seems to me to be corroborative evidence for the, the saviour that we serve and follow. So tonight I want you to listen to four statements made by enemies of the Lord Jesus Christ that put together will constitute the gospel according to Christ's enemies. That's our task tonight. And by the way, let me say, that if ever I were put on trial for being a Christian, and that's not in, out of the question in modern Britain, um, if I were ever put on trial for being a Christian, this would be my defence, what I'm sharing with you tonight. This would be the case that I would make for being a Christian. So, are you ready for the task? Let's turn to the first statement, which you'll find in Matthew's Gospel. 
And I'm sorry we may not have one or two of these up on the screen. I should have thought ahead about that and put them there. But if you've got a Bible or you're next to someone with a Bible, let's read together two verses from Matthew chapter 22 and verse 15. Then the Pharisees, who you remember were enemies of the Lord Jesus, then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words. And they sent their disciples to him, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true. Wow. Teacher, we know that you are true. And teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinions, for you are not swayed by appearances, or you, you're no respecter of persons, says the NIV, I think. So, here are the enemies of the Lord Jesus, and they make three very startling admissions in those verses. First of all, they acknowledge his integrity. We know that you are true. They acknowledged his accuracy. You teach the way of God in truth. And they acknowledged his impartiality, for you are not respecter of any persons. So, Jesus, they acknowledged, was not, he was not honing his statements to get acceptance. He wasn't playing to the crowd. He didn't have any fear of man. He gave us the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. He gave us, they said it, that he gives us absolute truth, and incidentally it's backed up with absolute integrity. And that's where the gospel starts. It starts by telling you, this is someone that you must listen to. This man is different to all the others. The crowd, you know, that listened to Jesus' teaching said on one occasion, never a man speak like this man. When he finished the Sermon on the Mount, you know, Jesus preached a sermon on ethics that has been acknowledged by people all, all over the world and of every faith and background. He gave us the truth and nothing but the truth. They said, never a man spake like this man. So, It's the highest ethical teaching the world has ever heard, according to even his enemies. When he finished uh, preaching the Sermon on the Mount, uh, the Bible says that the people said about it, we've never heard anything like this. This man teaches as one having authority and not like the scribes. You know, when the scribes taught, they quoted their authorities. They said, Rabbi so-and-so says this. 
Rabbi so-and-so says that. But Jesus didn't preach like that. When he taught, he was his own authority. He didn't quote other authorities. He was his own authority. In fact, he's famous for beginning his statements very often with this formula, truly, truly, I say unto you. And that was his authority. There's never been another teacher in this world like that. Truly, truly, I say to you. Einstein, no less, was gripped by this when he refers to the teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ. Einstein comments about it all. His personality pulsates in every word. It's not that he just, just that he, he taught it, but he lived it. He lived it. Says Einstein, he was a dynamic example of his own values. That's where the gospel begins with us tonight. You know, people everywhere around us today in modern Britain, in the West, Western culture certainly, are confused about this whole matter of authority and who to listen to. Are the Jehovah's Witnesses right when they come knocking at our door? Are the Mormon missionaries right? Are the atheists right? Who are we going to listen to? The Bible says and the gospel says to you, listen to him. And it's not only his friends who say that, but it's his very enemies who say this is where you need to look for the truth. Now I may be talking to somebody tonight who's confused about the great matters of life and death and eternity. And you don't know what to do next. You've read this and that and the other and you've heard all the people on the God channels and you, you're just confused about it all. The gospel tells you to listen to Jesus. Listen to him. And that's the first thing. Now let me turn you to a second text. You see, they not only acknowledged that his teaching was pure, but they acknowledged in the second place that his miracles were real. So let's go to the chapter in John, John chapter 11, that we put up on the screen and read a little earlier. John chapter 11 and at verse 47. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do? For this man performs, here it is, performs many signs, miracles. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So they acknowledged that his miracles were real. Well, they had to, hadn't they? Because there was a man sitting with them that Jesus has just raised from the dead. 
So they couldn't deny the reality of what has gone on. And the problem for them was that it wasn't just that one miracle. But there was miracle after miracle, 30-odd miracles recorded in the New Testament. How many others there were, who can say? But he was healing people here and there and everywhere. They lined the street with patience and he went down the road and he healed them all. And not just psychosomatic illnesses, but, but gross pathology, whatever it was. The disorder of, of mind or body. He healed it all, healed them all, without exception. This isn't the televangelist, you know, pulling a stunt. This is the Son of God, all powerful. And when we turn to John's Gospel, we're here now. It's interesting that John sets forth, sets out for us the miracles that he has chosen out of those 30-odd miracles recorded in the four Gospels. He chooses these seven, just seven of them. And he chooses them very carefully because, you know, this uh, gospel according to John was written for unbelievers to convince them of the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he says right at the end of his letter, this is why I've written, the, why I've written this gospel. Um, many other miracles Jesus did which are not written in this book, but these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ and that you might have life through his name. So he was writing to prove the personhood of Jesus, who he was, and chooses, as he sets out to do that, seven miracles and also seven statements that Jesus made. But seven miracles that should be enough to convince anybody of the person of Christ. Now he chooses, first of all, to tell us about the water that Jesus turned into wine. That is, you see, that proves that Jesus is the Lord of quality. He also tells us that Jesus fed the 5,000 with just five loaves and two fishes. That proves that Jesus is the Lord of quantity. And then he healed the nobleman's son without even going to see him. That proves that Jesus is the Lord of distance. He healed a man who'd been paralyzed by the pool for 38 years. 38 years. And that proves that Jesus is the Lord of time. He tells us that Jesus walked on the water. That proves that Jesus is the Lord over the environment. And then he healed a man who had been born blind. 
Now that to my mind is one of the greatest miracles of all. This man had been born blind. His optic tracts and his visual cortex at the back of his brain had never learned to process visual information. And yet instantly, Jesus is able to give him perfect sight. It proves that Jesus is the Lord of all disease, surely. And then, finally, he raised Lazarus from the dead. And it proves that Jesus is the Lord not only of disease, but Lord over death itself. And afterwards, of course, John relates how Jesus raised himself from the dead. The Father raised him from the dead. <coughs> what an amazing collection of evidence, of proofs that Jesus is whom he came, claims to be the resurrection and the life. Seven miracles are enough. Because when you get to the end of the gospel, remember John says, and many other miracles Jesus did, not just these seven, many more, but these are written. These seven are enough to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing, you might have life through his name. My dear friends, this is the news for you tonight. When you put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the greatest miracle of all takes place in you. Jesus called it the new birth. You're born again. It's supernatural. It's the work that only God can do in us. But says John, these seven are enough in order that you might believe and you might have life through his name. So, what a tremendous proof that is of the deity of our Lord Jesus Christ. His enemies couldn't get round it. They scratched their heads and they conferred and they said, what are we doing? If we don't do anything, everybody's going to believe in him. What should they have done, do you think? They should have bowed on their faces to the ground and acknowledged who he was. And that's what you and I need to do. To be right with God. To acknowledge the Lord Jesus for who he is and put our trust in him. And then we shall know the promise that we have eternal life through new birth in Christ. In this passage in John's Gospel, there's a third statement I want you to notice. And look at verse 40, uh, 49. John eleven forty nine. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, You know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you, listen to this, that one man should die for the people. In other words, they acknowledged that his death was going to be 
For others, it was going to be a substitutionary atonement that brings us eternal life. Now, it's interesting that John goes on in verse uh, for 51 to make this statement. He did not say this of his own accord. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for that nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. In other words, they acknowledge that Jesus is going to die for the people. And this man, Caiaphas, the arch enemy of the Lord Jesus Christ, says something that was absolutely true. So that for once in his life, he said something that was absolutely true. And here it is. Jesus died for the world. The world. Not just for Jewish people, says John, as he comments on this but that he should die for the whole nation, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Oh yes, Jesus died on the cross in our place to face the judgment of God. And he died not only for Jewish people, he died for people in High Lake. He died for people in this building tonight. Yeah. He died for you, my friend. That you might have forgiveness and be right with God. His death was going to be substitutionary. He was the Lamb of God. He says in chapter 1, verse 29, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. He died the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. Four times in one verse in Isaiah, he teaches us this truth, glorious truth of substitutionary atonement. I don't have to face God in my sins because I've got no hope of acceptance. But when I bow the knee to Christ, all that happened on Calvary, becomes mine. Amen. Now, my friend, let me illustrate it for you. Uh, I think um, Michael will bear me out tonight on this uh, point. And on the prairies of North America, they sometimes get great fires that sweep across the acreage at an alarming rate. And if you're out on the prairie when the fire is coming, you're in mortal danger. Yeah. Uh, but... You know, the, the, the old farmers there are a smart bunch and they, they know what to do when they see a fire coming. They light a match and they, they burn the ground where they're standing. Then they stand right in the middle of that scorched ground and they wait for the big fire to come and it will come all around them, but it won't touch them where they are, will it? Because... Where the fire has been, the fire can never touch again. 
Now, my dear friends, do you know what was happening at Calvary when Jesus died for you? He died under the wrath of God for our sins. Your sins and mine. And if you and I stand on that precious spot where Jesus took our place, we are safe from the fire of God's wrath. Because where the fire has been, the fire can never touch again. Are you trusting in Christ? That's our only hope. Stand on that spot by faith. Let me bring you to a, one con final instance of these wonderful statements that fell from the lips of his enemies. In the 15th chapter of Luke's Gospel, and the opening verses, we have a gem that just melts my heart every time I read it. From the lips of the Saviour. John chapter, uh, Luke chapter 15, the first verse. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners. This man receives sinners. Straight from the lips of his enemies. My dear friend, I couldn't put it better than that myself. Isn't it wonderful? He does receive sinners. We know that they meant it as a slur. I'm sure they did, don't you? They meant it as a slur, but it has become his everlasting tribute. Because for 2,000 years he's been receiving sinners. The last and the least and the lowest and the worst. The inveterate sinners. The deep-dyed sinners. The repeat sinners. Repeat offenders. Sinners. Rapists and child abusers. and People that you and I would never think have a hope. He's been receiving them. He's the friend of sinners according to scripture. He said, I've come not to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. He said, those that are well don't need a doctor. It's the people who are sick. In other words, come to me, to the great physician. It's a wonderful invitation. And it depends on one thing. Do you qualify? Do you qualify as a sinner? You know, I think if our sins were written on our foreheads, not one of us would have come through that door tonight. 
if the story was really told of what we are and what we've done, I qualify, I know that, do you? You see, if he welcomes sinners, you have to know that you are a sinner and take that step to come to him. There was a famous preacher in Britain many years ago called George Whitfield and uh, his uh, ministry was just wonderful, you know. Uh, he had an amazing voice that could reach 20,000 people in the open air. Think of that. Before amplifiers and PA systems. And sometimes at the back of the crowd, he would see the riffraff of society. They wouldn't dare show their faces up front, but they were there on the, at the back of the crowd. Pickpockets and prostitutes and... Oh, all sorts. And he would cry to them with his wonderful voice, you that are the devil's outcasts, you can come too. And so people came during those decades of his ministry. In their thousands, they came to, to Christ. And it changed the social face of Britain. How we could do with the George Whitfield again in our nation. But you know, George Whitfield had a brother, and he wasn't a Christian. And uh, late in his life, he went to hear George Whitfield preaching just once. And then we went to one of these great open air meetings in the fields. And um, afterwards, they all stayed the night with a lady who was a great supporter of God's servants in those days, a noble woman called uh, the Countess of Huntingdon. And they all slept uh, at her mansion. And um, the following morning, they came down to breakfast and uh, George Whitfield's brother came down to breakfast and uh, she said to him, I trust you slept well. And he said, oh yes, I slept well. I didn't sleep well, he said. It was very comfortable, but I, did, I couldn't sleep. After listening to my brother, I, I know I'm lost. I'm lost. I'm lost. He put his head in his hands. She leaned across the table and she said to him, I'm glad that you are lost. He looked up and he said, you're glad that I'm lost? She said, yes, I'm glad that you are lost. Because the Bible says that Jesus came to seek and to save that which is lost. And he saw it. He saw that he was the very person Jesus came for. And he put his trust in the Saviour. And within a few days, he died. He'd gone to glory. Jesus, this man, receives 
sinners. So I've shown you four statements that will, uh, I trust, stay in your mind and be a reminder of the gospel. They acknowledge that his, his teaching was pure, that his miracles were real, that his death was substitutionary for, for sinners, and he's the friend of sinners. C.S. Lewis said something that makes me sit bolt upright every time I think of it. When you come to the, consider the gospel as we've done tonight, you know, it's such a crucial, climactic thing in your life, what you're listening to tonight. You need to respond to it. You have to make a response. Jesus welcomes sinners, but you must come to him. He bids you come. He encourages you to come. He draws you by, by the spirit of his grace. So, but you need to come. Now, C.S. Lewis said about the evidence for Christianity. If Christianity is not true, it is of no importance whatsoever. And all that I've talked to you tonight, if it is not true, is a completely without consequence. But says C.S. Lewis, if Christianity is not true, it is of no importance. If Christianity is true, then it is infinitely important. And the one thing it cannot be is moderately important. Now, have you got that? This affects your whole life, you know. For time and eternity, when you take that step, coming to the friend of sinners. Let's bow in prayer together briefly.